0: Hello and welcome to Vital Science. If you've ever spent time in the warm months visiting the many beaches and estuaries along the U.S. eastern seaboard, you might have crossed paths with a rather large and alien-looking species, the horseshoe crab. Known less commonly by its scientific name, Limulus polyphemus, the Atlantic horseshoe crab is remarkable for numerous reasons. The species has stood the test of time, thriving in the ocean for the past 450 million years. But it has only been developments of the past several decades that have brought the crab into the spotlight. Back in the 70s, researchers studying the horseshoe crab found that the animal's blood had an aggressive clotting reaction to the presence of harmful bacteria. Further research found the response to be driven by specific proteins in the crab's blood. The derivative, called Limulus amebocyte lysate, or LAL, in honor of its donor, has since been used in the in vitro testing of sterile solutions implantable medical devices, and injectable drugs. And so today, we welcome two horseshoe crab experts who delve deeper into this remarkable creature, explain the evolution of LAL in vitro testing, describe ongoing conservation efforts, and discuss current research on LAL alternatives. With that, I'll turn it over to Gina. Hello,
1: and welcome to another episode of Vital Science. Thanks for joining us. Limulus amoebocyte lysate, or LAL, is used to detect endotoxins in all injectable pharmaceutical products and implantable medical devices. If endotoxins make it into the bloodstream, a patient can develop a pyrogenic response or fever, and even symptoms of septic shock. Thanks to LAL and horseshoe crabs, we all have received endotoxin-free products over the years. Why should we thank horseshoe crabs? Well, stay tuned to find out what horseshoe crabs have to do with keeping us safe from endotoxins and how we are keeping them safe from endangerment. In this episode, we will be discussing endotoxin testing, horseshoe crabs, and sustainability. Our guests today are Dr. Norm Wainwright, Senior Director of Research and Development, and Nicola Reed, Associate Director of Product Development with Charles River. Both have worked on evolving LAL testing to make it more efficient for pharmaceutical companies, safer for patients, and more sustainable for the planet. Welcome, Norma Nicola. Hello. Good morning. Hey. So uh, let's start with you, Norm. Can you share a bit about your background with us?
2: Yes, I grew up on the New Jersey shore. So my, my first contacts with horseshoe crabs actually came probably when I was six or seven years old. Um, Our family would frequently go boating and lunchtime would just pull over and have a sandwich or two while we waded around in the shallow water. So seeing the horseshoe crab at that age with bare feet was a little bit startling, but um, it it was a very positive thing in retrospect.
1: And did that uh, somehow imprint upon you to um, make some decisions in your future career?
2: Well, I guess it did. Although at the time it probably wasn't the first thing on my mind. Um, <laughs> all living things are, are beautiful in their own way, and I think horseshoe crabs are beautiful in a very unique way. They're they're very alien looking, and I think your f- first encounter is a bit startling, to say the least. But it is kind of funny how uh, later in my career, uh, after quite a bit of biochemistry training, molecular biology, uh, the opportunity arose to go to the Marine Biological Lab and uh, work with horseshoe crabs and uh, really have some direct contact with these uh, relatively strange looking creatures.
1: Wonderful. And now for you, Nicola, I suspect you're not uh, able to see horseshoe crabs on the shores as often as, as Norm and I are. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Gina. So I'm based in the United Kingdom, so we don't have the luxury of having horseshoe crabs in our water. Um, I started to work with Charles River 18 years ago, but my first experience of horseshoe crabs was with actual endotoxin testing a few years before that, um, when I started to work in pharmaceuticals. So I I learnt learnt the understanding of where LAL come from, from these amazing creatures, but I didn't get the opportunity to actually see one uh, in the flesh, so to speak, until I started to work for Charles River. And it's, uh, it's funny what Norm says, that when you actually see them for the first time, they're Uh, it's quite daunting you know they look like a very unusual uh, creature but um, they're just absolutely amazing uh, the way they function and I know we can talk a little about that today and the way they uh, help to protect us all from a medical perspective also.
1: Wonderful thanks for that Nicola and tell us a little bit about what you do in your role what are some of your responsibilities and, and things you're working on day to day?
3: Absolutely. So I work in the product management team and we work very closely with R&D and product development. So we're responsible for looking for new products and innovations and in how we move LAL or endotoxin testing forward uh, both now and in the future and how we improve upon the products that we currently have out there in the market. So we're continuously looking to improve on the testing itself, on the software that we have, on the hardware that we have to meet the demands and the needs of the pharmaceutical companies.
1: Now, Norm, everyone I speak to um, about horseshoe crabs is always surprised uh, by the important role they play in biomedical research. Can you tell us a little bit how that came to be?
2: Sure. Um, As I mentioned, I I did spend some time at the Marine Biological Lab in Woods Hole. And one aspect of that facility, um, a hallmark really, is that they have explored marine invertebrates particularly, and how they interact with uh, human health, uh, how they might be used as models to understand human health a little bit better. So for instance, things like um, how nerves get transmitted electrically was discovered by looking at a large bundle of nerves in the squid and where they could take some readings. So for the horseshoe crab, there's really two areas that uh, came to play here. One was vision. Their eyes uh, have um, a very convenient nerve that one can look at to study vision and how um, light gets transmitted to nerves, transmitted to the brain, etc. And the second is the clotting reaction in response to bacteria. And, and that's really what led to... LAL. Uh, Investigators at the Marine Biological Lab, uh, specifically Frederick Bang uh, out of Johns Hopkins and uh, Jack Levin, uh, started working with horseshoe crabs as a model to understand bacterial infections. However, when they injected bacteria into the horseshoe crab, it was rather um, a dramatic clotting of the blood that occurred, which really puzzled them and caused them to start asking totally different questions than what they initially were setting out to do. So after actually several years uh, of experimentation, they discovered that this mechanism was the bacterial endotoxin present in the cell wall of bacteria that the uh, horseshoe crab blood cells were reacting to, basically triggering a clotting reaction as a way of their defense mechanism, how they might deal with an injury that would bring bacteria into contact with their blood and so on. So by this a bit of serendipity, uh, the uh, clotting mechanism was discovered, its relationship to bacterial endotoxin. And as you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, Bacterial endotoxin can be uh, very toxic uh, when it's exposed to the blood of humans and even small concentrations.
1: That really is a perfect way to describe it, serendipity. I love that. Um, What an interesting story. And, um, you know, just science continues to uh, amaze me every day. Uh, Nicola, so what Norm is describing. I take it eventually led to this LAL test that I mentioned before. Can you tell us a little bit about that test and how it's evolved? What's been exciting to you in that evolution?
3: Around that time when the scientists were discovering that there was actually a, um, a clotting reaction cascade, so to speak, when in the presence of endotoxin, what was being used for endotoxin testing within pharmaceuticals at that time was rabbits. Uh, which is known as the rabbit pyrogen test. So uh, the products would be injected into rabbits and we'd be looking for an increase uh, in temperature over so many rabbits to declare a positive. Of course, nobody wants to be using animals, animal models. So when um, um, Dr. Wang, Dr. Levin, discovered this, then uh, this opened up a whole new scope of could we use something, could we have an in vitro method here uh, for endotoxin detection? Um, It wasn't quite that simple. There's a lot of work needed to be done, of course, in order to kind of perform an assay. And and many people were involved in that process um, uh, way, way back now, um, a number of decades ago, to put together what was limulus amoeba lysate, which is LAL, what we use today in the assay forms. And obviously this comes from the blood of the horseshoe crab. So we were able, it took a long time uh, to do comparative studies from rabbit pyrogen testing to LAL to have the confidence that this new LAL was as good as rabbits. Actually, what turned out was it was better than rabbits. It was far more sensitive than the rabbit test and far better at picking up very small amounts of endotoxin. It came directly from from the horseshoe crab. So we evolved from utilising rabbits into this in vivo assay with LAL. And obviously, as we'll discuss today, we've continued to evolve that. Um, That first test that we had for LAL was gel clot. Now we have numerous different tests and ways to reduce the amount of LAL as well. So we continue, it continues to evolve, but um, being able to move away from rabbits into this was um, was an amazing part uh, of science at the time.
0: As Nicola mentions, there were many stages and players involved in the process of proposing and validating the LAL-based bacterial endotoxin test. Over time, Research proved that LEL could detect as little as one picogram of bacterial endotoxin per milliliter, which, for reference, is equivalent to a grain of sand in an Olympic sized swimming pool. It's pretty amazing. It's no surprise, then, that the test gained regulatory acceptance and it was approved as an in vitro alternative to the rabbit pyrogen test in 1977. This, of course, was for true in the dish kinetic plate incubation and gel clot testing, where reconstituted LEL is mixed with the pharmaceutical samples. If a clot forms, the sample is contaminated. While a great improvement over the lengthy, expensive, and labor-intensive rabbit test, traditional LAL testing still had its challenges, like the need for technician training and the possibility of related user error, and a requirement for in-lab testing. These factors have driven further developments in the BET since then. Let's listen to how testing has evolved.
1: And um, Maybe this is a question for Norm. I understand with the evolution of this test, the the latest assay um, uses cartridges instead of um, the traditional approach of microplates or, um, you know, kind of in, in the tubes. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of those advances using cartridge technology?
2: Sure. The uh, As Nicola mentioned, the test became very regimented in the way that LEL was able to be uh, transmitted into a in vitro test that could be done in test tubes originally and then uh, other types of uh, small devices. But it was always a very difficult test to do in the sense that the technician had to be very careful uh, not to get contamination from the environment uh, near the test. So um, when we were looking at uh, developing a system basically to use a small computer handheld that would be able to run the test without very much human intervention and eliminate some of those problems of contact with uh, pipettes and tubes and so on. We developed a way to dry very small amounts of the LEL reagents into a cartridge about the size of a microscope slide, a few inches long, and uh, have the computer run the test by pulling a sample in, rehydrating the sample, uh, the enzymes uh, from the LAL test, as well as a chromogenic substance that would change color uh, during the course of the reaction. So we realized that we could get by with very much smaller quantities of material. And in the end, ended up with only about 5% of The number amount of reagents used for such a test.
3: It's a 95% reduction in the amount of uh, reagent used in comparison with what we call traditional assays, those being gel clot or traditional kinetic plate methods. So it it brought about many advantages. There was speed, there was ease of use, but I think the most important thing here is that it allowed us to use a, a much smaller amount of the raw material and that's really important when we're looking at how we actually gather this material via the bleeding of these horseshoe crabs.
2: The other thing that uh, the technology allows is to make the test more portable, that one could take this handheld reader with a cartridge uh, to any location, say on a factory floor or even in, um, in the outside environment to perform the test that was traditionally uh, done in a laboratory.
1: Uh, Okay, great. Really insightful from both of you. Uh, One thing you said, Nicola, that I wondered if we could dig into a little bit more is um, about the reduction of the amount of raw materials, because I know that's one of the things that Charles River focuses on heavily is its conservation efforts on the horseshoe crabs. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about those things or Norm, if you have some perspective on that, because I think that's something that's probably important to mention here.
2: I could add that from the very beginning of the End of Safe Division, which was started by Dr. Jim Cooper, that he worked very hard to work with the legislators at the state level to get laws in place that would protect the horseshoe crab, actually prevent them from being taken for the bait uh, industry, which would have a drastic implication for the population and really limit the collection of horseshoe crabs in a very controlled way to only be used for the biomedical application and the production of LAL.
3: Yes, Norm, it's very important to us that we have those practices in place. We have that uh, protection order in place, certainly in South Carolina, to ensure that the horseshoe crabs can only be used for biomedical purposes and not for bait purposes. But we also have other legislation in place for the welfare of the horseshoe crabs. So when they are collected, we ensure that they are being looked after and that they're being taken back to where they came from within a very short space of time. And this is really important for all people who are collecting these for biomedical purposes to ensure that they're following these welfare practices. And there are a number of people who uh, enforce these welfare practices, but also keep an eye on the numbers and the stock levels of the horseshoe crabs. And they regularly bring out reports, stock reports, to let us know how well the population is doing. And a recent report um, has come out, and it's wonderful to know that the stock levels of horseshoe crabs are very healthy at the moment and very robust, certainly in all the areas where we currently uh, take them for biomedical purposes.
2: Yes, for sure. The, um, it's quite interesting uh, from the standpoint of the public, uh, and I'm, I'm always a bit surprised by this, that there's such a positive connection. There are many people that just love horseshoe crabs, and even though they really are not anything like a uh, fuzzy puppy or a panda bear, uh, but there is a, a genuine connection where people really appreciate having the crabs out in the environment and just being able to see them. So we've always been uh, aware that the scientific information of what we do is important for the public to understand. We've actually partnered with several aquaria around the country, uh, starting in South Carolina, but later with Mystic Aquarium um, and certainly Rutgers University, and One aspect of the Rutgers plan uh, that I became very interested in back in, I believe, around 2017 or 18, was that they were able to take some fertilized horseshoe crab eggs, and these are the eggs that are laid by the crabs in the spring, in estuaries, along beaches, and uh, take some of those fertilized eggs into an aquaculture facility. Uh, Rutgers has a very sophisticated facility in Cape May, New Jersey, that they use for this purpose. So in 2017, I believe, was the first time that Rutgers raised uh, several of these horseshoe crabs to an age that would be allowing them to survive better in the environment. Normally, uh, when eggs are laid on the beach, you know, by the many millions, uh, the number of crabs that result from those fertilized eggs is quite small. The, the eggs are eaten by seabirds, by uh, various fish and uh, the amount of uh, uh, crabs me- making it to the adult stages are really quite small. So what Rutgers did by taking the fertilized eggs into aquaculture is to actually protect them, allow them to grow up a little bit uh, more four months or six months and then release them back where they could better survive with the idea that this would be a way to enhance the natural populations to basically do a bit of stock enhancement for the horseshoe crabs so this is something we have begun partnering with them to help support that
0: work and that continues to this day The horseshoe crab protections that EndoSafe founder Dr. James Cooper wrote and convinced South Carolina to adopt into law have served as the foundation for preservation efforts that continue today in new regions, like the Northeast. If you'd like to dive deeper into horseshoe crab conservation efforts, examine population data, or learn more about some of the programs that Charles River has been involved in, we invite you to explore the resources we've collected in the show notes. In our next segment, our guests cover what's perhaps on everyone's mind. How is LAL collected and what happens to the animals?
3: Yeah, it's very important that we look after this magnificent creature. Um, you know, people say it's a, it's a living fossil, 250 million years old. It's survived a lot and we need to make sure it continues to survive. It's a very important creature. So there's many things that are done from a conservation perspective, and um, not just from ourselves, from, from the other LAL vendors as well. Everybody is very active in the conservation process for horseshoe crabs. Also, um, they're brought into the facility to uh, to be bled, to take blood from them. Um, so if we just talk a little about that, I think is important that they're hand collected by um, licensed local fishermen. Uh, they're hand collected, they're brought into the facility and we take a small amount of blood from them, a small aliquot. Um, we can't overbleed them. Uh, there's a protection in their system anyway, but we just take a small aliquot. They're then taken back um, and hand placed back again. Um, it's a, a very fast process. Uh, we ensure we have them back within um maximum of 24 hours it's usually much more quickly than that and then that small aliquot we move on then obviously to produce um, the LAL and with the cartridge technology that we, we we were discussing earlier We need less and less of that. So we don't need to bleed quite as much because we don't need as much on that cartridge technology. So it really is a step forward, not just these other programs with the aquaculture, with the protection of them, uh, but also for us to look at methods and ways to reduce the amount needed, but still give that good test, that regulated test that we know works very well.
2: You know, Nicola, I think the other aspect of this conservation is that There really has been historically a very bad treatment of the horseshoe crabs, going back to the uh, earliest part of the 20th century and before, uh, where crabs were harvested in huge numbers and used uh, for fertilizer in the agricultural industry. So um, I think overfishing for that purpose had a dramatic uh, impact on, on the population as well as the natural habitat for the horseshoe crab has become under more and more pressure, especially in the Northeast, where the human population has uh, moved closer to the shore and uh, populated many of those areas which uh, used to be pristine estuaries and breeding grounds for the horseshoe crab.
1: So what is the um, rate of mortality for uh, Biomedical purposes, because Norm, what you're describing, you know, that sounds like 100% mortality if they're being used for that purpose. What do you see as mortality from uh, the biomedical use?
2: I think it's safe to say that everyone collecting the horseshoe crabs in the industry takes good care of the animals, and and I think there's certainly self-interest involved, where we depend on them for a production source, so naturally we would do the best we can to uh, protect them. Uh, but there are losses when crabs are handled, know, just taken out of the water, transported to the uh, bleeding operation, then transported back. So there is an estimate in the industry that uh, there's about 15% loss in this process. Um, we in South Carolina are watched very closely by the Department of Natural Resources, and our estimates of losses are somewhat better than that, somewhere between six or eight percent. But even so, the uh, amount of loss from the collection and uh, return of the horseshoe crabs is uh, minimal, I think, compared to crabs being collected, you know, and used for bait, which is one hundred percent mortality, uh, or uh, in the old days, you know, taking huge numbers and and basically going into the fertilizing
3: Yeah, and that's clear in the ASMFC stock report as well, that they state it's a small number that we take for biomedical purposes in comparison to what they take for the bait industry anyway. And then the the estimated mortality on that is smaller again. So it's almost negligible. They do say it's a minuscule amount in the report, not something to be concerned about, not something that would negatively impact the population. There are a number of things listed that could uh, or would negatively impact the population baiting as we say it's 100 mortality but now there are restrictions on the numbers that they can take and and that is getting better you know the, the more uh, preservation orders in place the less baiting uh, collection there is for bait but as norm described you know loss of habitat various different environmental conditions can also um, impact the horseshoe crab and therefore then impact a a further ecosystem. As Norm said, there are birds that feed on this, one of those being the red knots. Uh, So quite often people are concerned that our biomedical industry directly involved with reducing the number of horseshoe crabs, therefore reducing the number of eggs, therefore reducing the number of red knots. And I think all the data that is out there, the independent data, clearly shows that that is not the case. biggest concern here uh, is overfishing for bait and uh, from loss of habitats uh, through to destruction of coastal waterways uh, or environmental impacts. And uh, there's many of us work together and there's many other independent agencies that work to try and prevent that as well. But in the reports, the numbers are very high. We're talking millions of horseshoe crabs here. Um, you know, when you look at other endangered species like tigers, etc., they're in the very low numbers, below 100, and we're talking millions. Um, so, so we're in a very good place with Horseshoe Crab and we, we intend to continue to reduce the amount that we need to use for testing, whilst keeping that good sensitivity that we need in a test.
0: As part of her role in product R&D, Nicola has been involved in not only developing better ways to use our supply of LAL responsibly, as with cartridge-based LAL testing, but she and her team are actively seeking viable alternatives. In our next segment... Nicola and Norm unpacked the development and progress of synthetic products or recombinant proteins, which have been around for a long time, but still have not succeeded in achieving industry-wide adoption. Unfortunately, as you'll hear, there are many challenges to recreating naturally occurring biological products, but we get closer to the real deal every day. With that, I'll turn it back over to Gina. Gina.
1: I'm wondering if we could now get into the topic of a chemically synthesized alternative to the LAL test that we've been talking about. I'd love to hear your perspectives. We keep hearing all this buzz around synthetic LAL, or what the industry calls recombinant technology. So, Norm, what can you tell us about recombinant LAL?
2: Well, I I think it was very attractive from the early days of recombinant DNA technology that, that... this might be able to be applied in this this way. The gene that would code for each of those enzymes in the enzyme cascade in the limulus cells, those genes can be engineered by placing them into another cell, a bacterial cell, a yeast cell, even an insect cell or a human cell. And that gene would then be read in those cells in culture so that the enzymes could be produced synthetically in the laboratory rather than being collected from the animal. However, the situation is a little more complex than a single gene. It really takes all three of those enzymes acting sequentially so that factor C is activated by the bacterial endotoxin. It then activates the second enzyme. And then the second enzyme activates the third enzyme. Each of those steps gives amplification to the signal of the endotoxin binding to the first enzyme. So that in the end, uh, there is uh, the ability to detect extremely small amounts of material that gets amplified by this method. So... When we talk about recombinant technology replacing the test, and Nicola mentioned the factor C as the first enzyme, it was used by itself. That is one enzyme, not the full cascade. So there's a difference then in how that reaction could be reacting to the endotoxin with the possibility that it would not be as good, say, as the natural product in picking out endotoxin contamination that would be naturally occurring.
3: Yeah, that's correct. And we did some studies on this. <clears throat> We've recently published a paper also. So we we produced our fully recombinant, we call it recombinant LAL, which was the three the three proteins, the three recombinant proteins. And we compared that to standard LAL. Um, biological LAL. And we also uh, looked at a number of the commercially available RFCs so that we could see the performance of each of them uh, and how they compared. Um, We were really uh, focused on what we call non-inferiority. And we collected a number of water samples from our pharmaceutical customers globally, um, samples that uh, were part of the WFI pretreatment and we knew would contain endotoxins because we wanted to challenge this with what we call natural environmental endotoxins. And what we actually found in the study is that in in comparison to LAL, which is what do we use now, which is what is standardized globally, the RFC underpredicts endotoxin quite heavily. Um, the recombinant LAL also underpredicts, not quite as 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 um, as much as the the RFC does, but still does underpredict. So we were in a position after that study that we have all three enzymes, but it's still not equivalent, still not the same as LAL. So that's um, that's kind of where we are right now as a, as a company with Charles River, is that we have this really robust data that shows recombinant technology right now is not as good as LAL. It's not equivalent to LAL when we're look, looking at environmental endotoxins. Can we get there? Yes, I believe we can. And, you know, Norm can detail that, that there's, there's a lot There's a lot of other things going on in that horseshoe crab blood. There's other intracellular proteins, other activity um, within that horseshoe crab blood that we are learning about, understanding. And perhaps we need to know a little bit more about those to, to help us enhance this recombinant technology. But I do believe we will have a future of recombinant. We'll be able to move away from um, using less and less LAL, helping them to conserve uh, the horseshoe crab further and uh, moving towards recombinant in the future. But it has to be right. It has to be perfect. We rely on LAL now for everything, for, for anything that's injectable or a medical device and implantable to make sure it's free of endotoxin. So if we're sick and we're in hospital and we, we need a, a, an IV of some kind, that it's not going to make us more sick uh, if there's endotoxin in there. So, we need to make sure that anything that will take over in the future and take the place of LAL is as good as LAL.
2: I think we should remind ourselves that the horseshoe crab species have been around for over 450 million years. So, they've had a while to evolve this rather complex uh, mechanism to ensure that their blood cells could react with the broadest possible range of bacteria out there to be part of their immune system. So we're playing catch up in a way, uh, but we're learning very quickly. So as as Nicholas said, um, the formulation of the recombinant enzymes that we now have uh, can be adjusted. Uh, We can um, perhaps Tweak things to be able to uh, get the performance of our synthetic LEL as good or maybe even better than the natural LEL.
3: Yeah, as I said before, these are living fossils, you know, 250 million years in the making, and we're trying to create a synthetic that matches what they have in their circulatory system. So it's clever science, it's very, very, very interesting. Um, I certainly find it interesting, and, and to see the progression of this is, is quite amazing.
2: Yeah, it really is. I just want to make sure, Nicola, it's it's 450 million years. You said
1: 250.
2: (laughs) 450.
1: A A long time. (laughs) Uh, So, Nicola, I know there was a recent regulatory decision made about RFC. What can you tell us about that?
3: Yes, certainly. So recently in Europe, um, EDQM, which is the regulatory body for the European Pharmacopeia, produced a new chapter, uh, Chapter 2.6.32, which is for the use of recombinant factor C. So that is actually a compendial chapter within the European Pharmacopeia that was published in January of this year, 2021. So we do now have a compendial chapter in Europe. But what's significant about this, and actually the EDQM presented on this, uh, a lady called Emmanuel Charton, she presented that uh, it's like an empty shell con- uh, concept. We have this compendial chapter. However, all products fall within monographs within the pharmacopeia and also within the general chapter. And each of the monographs and the general chapters specify which methods should be used for bacterial endotoxin testing. And all of those chapters actually specify LAL at the moment. So even though there's a compendial chapter for RFC, when you're following the monograph, it guides you to utilize LAL. So the position now for pharmaceutical manufacturers, if they're following the European pharmacopoeia, is that they can use RFC, but they would need to do a full alternate method validation because they wouldn't be using what is recommended in the monograph. So there is progression and movement within the European pharmacopoeia. With regards to the rest of the pharmacopoeias globally, um, the three that we have which are harmonized for bacterial endotoxin testing are the European, as we just discussed, the U.S. pharmacopoeia and the Japanese pharmacopoeia. So both the U.S. pharmacopoeia and Japanese pharmacopoeia have wrote chapters for the use of recombinant reagents. Those is a little bit more general to recombinant reagents rather than specific to RFC as the EP have done. And they've been um, through the process of of reviews and and feedback and they're currently looking at those and making a decision on whether they wish to publish a specific chapter in the way that the European pharmacopoeia has. However, all um, all of the pharmacopoeias, including the Chinese pharmacopoeia, do recognize recombinant as an alternative method. So people could use it, but they would have to go through a full alternative method validation and then submit that to the local authorities for acceptance as they will be deviating away from the normal LAL or TAL methodology. So there's there's been some movement, but... Uh, on the whole, it's it's very similar position as we have been for a while that it still remains um, much of an alternative method, other than this compendial chapter in in Europe.
0: Throughout this episode, our guests have discussed how LAL testing must conform to regulatory guidelines. I think we're all familiar with how medical treatments must satisfy regulatory requirements, but these measures also apply to testing methods in manufacturing. In fact, microbial detection is a highly regulated component of good manufacturing practices, which ensure the safety of pharmaceutical products. You've heard how traditional Limulus amoebocyte lysate testing is an approved compendial method. That is to say that it adheres to the standards set forth by Pharmacopeia. Different markets are regulated by their country's Pharmacopeia, U.S. Pharmacopeia or USP, as well as the European and the Chinese Pharmacopeia, and more. The compendial monographs that Nicola mentions define a set of standardized methods and specification testing for pharmaceutical raw materials and finished products. As a point of clarification, those who wish to adopt RFC-based testing of these products must complete the necessary validation for the testing of their specific products before results are accepted. And of course, it all comes down to the accuracy of the results. The safety of the patients depend on it.
1: So switching gears a bit. I know that vaccines are required to be tested for endotoxins as part of safety requirements. Um, and with the surge of vaccine production for COVID protection, what does this increased testing mean to the population of
3: horseshoe crabs? That's a really good question. And, it, and it's been one on many people's lips. Um, there's, there's been many reports on this. So um, actually the three major LAL manufacturers recently got together and, and uh, I think we have a published statement where they did the calculations based on I think the, the World Health Organization said we would need five billion vaccines globally in order to protect the globe from, from uh, COVID. So what that means is um, that doesn't mean we test five billion vials, um, because these, ba- these vials are made in large batches of maybe 500,000 vials, et cetera. And then you tend to test beginning, middle, and end of each of those batches. So we did the calculations of, okay, how many batches may be made over time, and therefore how many tests will be needed, and then how much more LAL would we need in order to cope with um, this, this mass manufacturing that will occur. And what was calculated was it would be one extra day's production from the three LAL vendors in order to supply enough LAL um, for all the COVID ma- ma- vaccines. So... Although the number sounds dramatic, 5 billion vaccines, when it's actually calculated down to what is needed, it isn't a huge amount. And that is in the vial format, as in the vial uh, vial format of LAL. If we actually use cartridges, uh, the cartridge technology to test these vaccines, then it's even less LAL that we need. It's 95% less of that one day's production. So um, there are no concerns uh, about shortages, about not having enough horseshoe crabs or not having enough of the raw material. There is plenty of that available. And we see that now, you know, vaccines are being manufactured, vaccines are being produced and they're being rolled out globally and and, uh, LAL supply is being consistent
1: wow, I don't think I realized that we didn't need to test every single vial, but just a sample of the batches. That makes sense now why people would be concerned with the LAL supply, but I think this really clears up the confusion.
2: I I think it goes back to the uh, connection that we all have with the husher crab. and I think we should realize that the husher crab is, is really only one of many thousands of marine organisms that we have not explored yet. I, I think that there's just ample opportunity for the future. Uh, who knows where the new products may be coming from? Such sources that, um, you know, the similar serendipities that occurred to, that resulted in LEL uh, may well happen with organisms that we haven't even begun to study.
1: The world of science, it's so fascinating. Well, thanks so much to you both. It was really interesting to hear your perspectives on this topic, and um, I can't thank you enough. Thank you.
0: My pleasure. Thanks, Gina, Norm, and Nicola. This amazing biological asset certainly benefits us all. And it's good to know that the manufacturers have come together to ensure that our collective supply of LAL can meet the demand of testing the millions of doses but it's also very interesting to hear about conservation efforts and the work being done to explore recombinant technologies. I encourage our listeners to explore the data from the comparative studies Nicola mentioned, which you'll find in the show notes. As with any natural resource, it's our responsibility to use LAL wisely and investigate viable alternatives. So, as you can see, the horseshoe crab's contribution to the biomedical industry is essential to human health. The safety of every single injectable is dependent on this animal. It's our collective responsibility as humans to preserve and protect the natural resources that we share with this planet. Until there is a safe, proven, and reliable solution that is equivalent to the crab's remarkable blood, we will continue to fight for its protection. Next month, we begin a fascinating series about finding new uses for existing drugs. Join us in May to hear from Dr. David Fagenbaum, a doctor patient, and advocate who found a treatment for his own disease in a drug intended for another purpose. You won't want to miss his inspiring story. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us at Vital Science.